Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A bill to fight climate change gets a bumpy ride on Capitol Hill as some senators turn to political procedures to derail the proposal. This deserves a better debate. And it's really sad that the world's greatest deliberative body has been reduced to tricks and gimmicks and parliamentary games rather than an honest debate on the future of our country and the future of this issue. Coming up, the heated debate over climate change puts public policy in the back seat. Also, oil billionaire T. Boone Pickens sours on sweet crude in favor of wind power. The wind has to be developed in the United States. I think everybody can see that we're going to break the country if we pay $700 billion a year for uh, imported oil. Texas tycoon T. Boone Pickens picks wind as the next very big thing. These stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Call it global warming gridlock. Finally, an historic bill to reduce the greenhouse gases causing global climate change reached the floor of the U.S. Senate, only to fall victim to another form of hot air, the filibuster. Our Washington correspondent, Jeff Young, watched it go down. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bruce. Uh, The heart of this bill, as I understand it, was the cap-and-trade approach, right? That's right. Cap-and-trade, in a nutshell, is you set an overall limit on emissions. That's your cap. Then you let companies buy and sell emissions credits, and that's the trade. The goal here was cutting greenhouse gases by about 65% by the middle of the the century. Hmm. And and the bill was proposed by Senators Joe Lieberman and uh, Republican John Warder. That's right. So you had a, a Republican, Warner, an independent, Lieberman, and the uh, Democratic leadership behind this. However, it faced very tough opposition. And even if it did pass, President Bush said he'd veto it. So there weren't a lot of people expecting this to become law. However, we did expect to at least hear a serious, substantial debate on this. Instead, we heard this. A report describing the assistance provided under this section by the board during the preceding calendar year, including... (laughs) Jeff, what's that? That's one of the clerks of the Senate reading the bill word for word. Republican leader Senator Mitch McConnell ignored the normal protocol and insisted that the whole bill be read aloud, all 490 or so pages of it. Oh, the poor clerk. How long did that take, Jeff? About nine hours. We were passing the hat here to buy the poor clerk some throat lozenges, but uh, seriously, this was a a form of obstruction by the Republican leaders in the Senate that filibustered the bill. Democrats did not have the votes to break the filibuster, and Democrats who supported it were understandably pretty upset. Here's uh, John Kerry of Massachusetts. This deserves a better debate, and it's really sad that the world's greatest deliberative body has been reduced to tricks and gimmicks and parliamentary games rather than an honest debate on the future of our country and the future of this issue. Hmm. Jeff, what did Republican leaders say was the reason for, for blocking this? Well, they disagreed with Democrats on how to proceed with debate. Uh, there was even a completely unrelated fight about judges. But yeah, bottom line here, Senator McConnell, the Republican leader, opposes a mandatory cap on greenhouse gases. And he and other Republicans, they just kept hammering the Democrats on one point, energy costs. We're amazed that they're calling this bill up at this particular time. I mean, it's a, it's a stunning thing to behold. 
with gas prices being the number one issue in America, they bring up a bill that uh, objective analysis concludes it's going to raise gas taxes uh, 53 cents. 53 cents. Jeff, is that true that this bill would raise gas prices another 53 cents a gallon? Uh, There are economic models that predict that, but what Senator McConnell conveniently leaves out is the time frame for that prediction. It's a 53-cent increase by the year 2030. So that breaks down to about two cents a gallon a year. Well, it's gone up a a buck just in the past few, few months. That's exactly the pushback from the Democrats who favor this bill. They, and they say, look, this bill is going to invest more in fuel-efficient cars and alternative fuels, so in the long run, we're going to end up using less oil. I'm a little confused here, Jeff, because John McCain, the Republican nominee for president, he supports this idea of using cap-and-trade, right? Well, he had not endorsed this bill just yet, but McCain is a very strong supporter of this kind of action on global warming, yes. So wouldn't you have had... Republicans against Republicans on this issue? Indeed you would have. And, and I asked McConnell about that. Well, I think Senator McCain can speak for himself. We're here to speak for us. And uh, so here I think we're getting to the real reason the debate was cut short. This is very divisive for Republicans. It's also divisive for some Democrats. you got a lot of coal state Democrats who would really prefer this just kind of go away. So on the surface, you had this partisan bickering. But if you look just a little deeper, you see, wait a minute, this really isn't about which party they're from. It's about which state they're from. Give me some examples of that, Jeff. I spoke with uh, Kent Conrad. He's a Democrat from North Dakota. There's a state with a lot of coal, oil, gas. He opposed the bill, but he was looking forward to the debate to see, you know, what kind of global warming action can he support? Because, you know, everybody knows this is going to be back next year. All the presidential candidates pledged to act on this. And Conrad used a baseball metaphor. This is a time to test out ideas. It's a time to negotiate, to talk about things that are needed to improve this approach. So I see this as spring training for next year, Uh, but spring training is important. Can I carry your spring training analogy a step further? Next year, uh, come the real season, are you on the roster? (laughs) I never negotiate in public. (laughs) (laughs) What about the Republicans? Not, Not the leadership, but the rank and file members. Where are they on this? You know, it's very interesting. There's a lot of change afoot. I got some time with Senator Bob Corker, Republican from Tennessee. You know, we just heard earlier the Republican leader, McConnell, saying, you can't talk about this when gas prices are so high. Well, here's how Corker sees it. A lot of my colleagues would say that this is the wrong time to be talking about legislation of this type because gasoline's at $4 a gallon. I think this is a perfect time to be talking about it. Doesn't sound like he's towing the party line there, Jeff. Not at all. But, you know, sadly, we're not going to hear the kind of debate that senators like Corker and Conrad wanted to have on important matters. What do you do about coal? Uh, How about nuclear power? How do you deal with competition from China? Things like that. So, Jeff, is that it for climate change in Congress this year, you think? That's probably it for the Senate, but things are just getting cooking over in the House. Uh, Democrat Ed Markey of Massachusetts has introduced a very aggressive climate change bill. It's a challenge to other House Democrats to get moving on this. We'll have hearings later this month in the House on climate change, and we'll see what happens. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Bruce. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Jeff Young. 
Well, now from the halls of Congress, where they're debating energy proposals, to Texas, where energy is big business. And one of the biggest players in that business is T. Boone Pickens. The oil tycoon started out as a small-time driller in the 1950s and parlayed his stake in petroleum into an empire, turning him into one of the richest people on the planet. But now Pickens is turning away from oil and into wind. This month, he put down the first installment on a billion dollars worth of wind turbines. It's part of his ambitious plan to turn 200,000 acres of the Texas panhandle into the world's biggest wind-generating power plant. Mr. Pickens, welcome to Living on Earth. Good, thank you. Mr. Pickens, you're, you're a petroleum guy, right? That's right. So why are you picking up the green patina and going with, you know, wind energy? Well, I've been in the uh, oil business for, I got out of school in 51, uh, geologist. <clears throat> I've been in the business for, I don't know, what is that, 100 years? <laughs> Seems like it sometimes. And uh, for a number of years, I've watched the wind turbines develop. And I feel like it's time for it. I think that Oil has peaked at 85 million barrels in the world. We've got to go to uh, other forms of energy. Wind, I think solar will be next, and I hope I'm still around to be in the solar deal. So how big is your project? It's big. It's a, uh, I think it's the largest wind farm in the world. It'll be 4,000 megawatts, which would be about uh, probably two uh, pretty good nuclear plants. So it'll service a million 300,000 homes. And uh, it'll be about $10 billion project without the transmission, and we probably will do the transmission, and that'd be another $2 billion. So total cost would be $12 billion. Now, it's pretty unusual for somebody to bankroll the, the transmission lines. It is. That is unusual. I agree. Well, why don't you let somebody else pay for it, like the transmission people? Well, it, it, everything goes slower if I do that. So to fit the schedule of, of when we're going to be ready to uh, start spinning, uh, which will be uh, the last of 2011, we need to have transmission in place at that time. And this is the only way we can time it to work that way. And, see, everything's got to happen fast for me because I'm 80 years old. Now, I'm sure you're aware that at the end of this year, the, the federal wind energy production tax credits expire. Congress has not voted on them. Well, that, that I think they'll vote on it. They'll either do that or they'll give some kind of carbon credit because the wind has to be developed in the United States. We're now importing 72% of the oil we use every day. I think everybody can see that we're going to break the country if we pay $700 billion a year for uh, imported oil. So the answer is in the wind. That's it. But the president has been against this because he wants to use tax credits not for alternative energies like wind, but for, you know, petroleum, which you're also invested in. Well, the the president won't be around, though, very much longer. Uh-huh. And so you're banking on another president taking Well, I'm, I'm banking on Congress uh, passing the production tax credit, yes. I know you're a big quail hunter, right? I'm a quail hunter, yes. What about your concern uh, about birds getting caught in the blades of these turbines? You know, do you know how high these things are? The uh, hub on the turbine is 280 feet up, and then the uh, the radius on the blade is another 120 feet. So you're 280 plus 120. You're 400 feet up on this to the tip. You know, that's a 40-story building. It would have nothing to do with quail. Quail don't fly that high. But uh, we're not in flyways where you have 
you know, uh, migration uh, through this area. So you don't have that many birds. I don't. I think you kill more birds on the window at my ranch house, and they do fly into the window, and I bet you kill more birds on the windows of buildings and houses and all than you ever would off of the blades on those windmills. Mr. Pickens, when you think about your investment in wind energy, um, what keeps you up at night? What do you think could go wrong? Keeps me up at night. I sleep. I'm not up at night. I don't worry about things. I, I have, from time to time, I have concerns about things, but not, I don't worry. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, what concerns me about it? I think we've got it well analyzed. I've got a a good team of people that are knowledgeable in wind energy and uh, I don't I don't worry about it. I think it's a go project and it'll it'll do well and we'll make money and uh it'll help the country. Miss Pickens, I know you're a big basketball fan. I know you were once thinking about becoming a college coach. Who do you pick in the finals? Celtics or Lakers? I pick Celtics. Oh good man. You gonna put money on the game? No, I don't bet on sports. <laughs> I've got a big enough bet on the wind. Well, Mr. Pickens, thank you very much. Good. I enjoyed the visit. Texas wind tycoon, T. Boone Pickens. Coming up, turning greenbacks into green bucks, investing in the next big thing. That's straight ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. While China's economy is booming, its environment is paying the price. The nation's air and waterways are choking with pollution. Industrial waste is poisoning the population. And coal, which provides 70% of China's energy, has helped turn it into the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. But now China's leadership is trying to clean things up, hoping to increase industrial energy efficiency by 20% with a healthy dose of clean technology. The effort has caught the eye of some savvy investors, as Elise Potaka reports from Beijing. As the days turn warmer in Beijing, air conditioners which now line the sides of most buildings come to life. On this summer's hottest days, many Chinese cities will struggle to cope with the rising energy demands of the country's increasingly affluent citizens. The International Energy Agency predicts that China's electricity production will double in the next 10 years. But for China's 1.3 billion people, this demand also offers opportunity, one which could give them a cleaner, greener future. Across the world, investors and entrepreneurs are starting to see dollar signs attached to China's struggle to reduce energy consumption and clean up its environment. David Wu checks his emails and sips a cool drink in the lobby of one of Beijing's upmarket hotels. Since he returned from studying abroad, David's rarely had time to sit still. In the last 12 months, his new company, NetPower, has closed $10 million in deals for affordable batteries he says can be used in both residential and industrial situations. 
by using electricity storage, we can use the electricity in off-peak hours and uh, store it and make it to be uh, released to a grid in the peak hours. David Wu's company has developed a zinc battery, which he says costs him less to produce than other batteries on the market. He hopes the affordability will also appeal to electrical utilities and allow them to buy more power from renewable sources. For the wind, for solar, they're essentially not a stable source. Uh, so the utility company has a lot of problem by handling those unstable uh, electricity uh, inputs. By using storage solutions, we can essentially stabilize the uh, output for wind farms and for the solar farms. David Wu is just one of China's new clean tech entrepreneurs. Behind these entrepreneurs is a growing pool of money, much of it supplied by overseas venture capitalists. Between 2005 and 2006, Cleantech investment increased by 147%, reaching around $420 million, and analysts predict this trend will continue. We're developing the community of investors, companies, entrepreneurs that are interested in cleantech, and we're bringing them together. Jim Mahoney is the managing director of Cleantech Group China, a company which links those with money to those with green technology ideas. We are accelerating the purchase and adoption of these clean technologies by industry at large, which as you increase that scale, we can lower costs, you can uh, speed up the return to the investors, and the whole cycle speeds up and grows from that. Currently, the global clean tech group claims over 8,000 investors and 6,000 companies across a wide range of projects. Water applications for conservation, for treatment, for reuse and recycling are, is a very, very important area. Um, biodegradable plastics was another one I thought, wow. An office block is under construction in Beijing's rapidly expanding central business district. With labour and construction costs low, China is also turning out to be a major player in the market for carbon offsets. That's where companies in the developed world get credits for reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the developing world. China is already the top supplier of credits, and foreign investors and companies are keen to get in. On the northern edge of the central business district are the offices for Camco China, a joint venture which is responsible for offering about 30% of China's carbon credits. Managing Director Alan Ho. There's actually two major areas that will help uh, on this sector. One is the energy efficiency, uh, where we help the enterprise to save using energy. Another one is to find alternate energy source, uh, renewable and new energy. But while carbon credit projects are generally well monitored here to ensure their environmental benefits, there are some concerns about other clean technology investments. Investors are backing environmental technologies which are cleaner than what's currently in place. But some environmental groups want the standard to be higher. At the Greenpeace Beijing office, employees have a coffee break and take in the 19th floor view across the city. On a good day, the view's spectacular. On a not-so-good day, the heavy brown haze of pollution is clearly visible. Greenpeace has just started a green investment campaign. Our financial leg uh, to support this work is to ask investors to channel their money from nuclear, from coal-fired power plants that create more emissions than that, uh, that we can afford uh, to renewables like wind and solar.
Campaigner Man K. Tam says Greenpeace would like to see investors backing renewable and new energy over, for example, reducing emissions in a new coal-fired power plant. By making direct contact with potential investors, Greenpeace wants to convince them to back the most environmentally friendly options. They'll also target investors here in China, who've been much slower than their international counterparts to invest in cleantech and green projects. Man K. Tam says it's about convincing people that protecting the environment will save them money. It's like environment can be a risk to them that affects their financial bottom lines. Say, for example, a factory, if it pollutes the river, they will be asked to close. Their license can be suspended. They will be fined billions of dollars. And all these are related to financial performances. This is economic. It is not just some moral concerns. For Living on Earth, I'm Elise Portaka in Beijing. While China isn't the only country in the world where investors are pumping billions into clean technology, here in the United States in 2000, the year the dot-com boom went bust, venture capitalists began funding clean tech big time. By 2005, clean tech investments had expanded by half a billion dollars. And the very next year, U.S. venture capitals got even more serious, inflating their clean tech investment portfolios threefold. And by 2007, things got really big, especially for solar, maybe too big. Market analyst Ted Sullivan says we're in a solar bubble that could burst next year as the supply of solar panels exceeds demand. Sullivan, a senior analyst with Lux Research, believes clean technologies have a bright future, but investors should prepare for a bumpy ride. The way that we look at the market is it's a series of of cascading boomlets, if you will. So it's a number of technologies which are taking their turn, kind of coming into vogue. And as they get bigger and as they scale, there's more light shown upon them. And some of the key technology issues become very apparent. Um, and at which point um, they kind of come back to a uh, come back to a base level. Well, you spoke of boomlets in the um, different energy technologies. Where is the next boomlet? Um, whereas in the past we've seen first in 2005, 2006, we saw biofuels. Today we're kind of at the end of the, the solar boomlet and things are coming back within the rational bounds. The, the next two that we're watching are really the, the energy storage sector, so new batteries uh, and new battery technologies. Uh, the, the drivers of that are, are a few. The first is the shift towards plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. So there's been a lot of rumblings recently about the, uh, the Chevy Volt, and we're watching Boston-based A123 Systems as being really kind of the, the lead-off IPO that will announce the, uh, the emergence of the energy storage space. A number of prominent venture capitalists who, who we talk to um, are beginning to, and, and have been uh, for the past year or so, been hungrily scavenging deals uh, in the energy storage space uh, in order to get a play there. Well, how much of the clean energies and the environmental technologies is, is real, and how much is mania, particularly in terms of money? I would argue that things are pretty real, and the reason that is is because compared to the dot-com boom, you really need to have some technology there. You can't just put a couple kids in a warehouse and, and have them program night and day for a couple months and turn out, a, turn out a product that has questionable value. In order to get build out solar installations, wind turbines, um, in order to uh, produce batteries and actually get them installed in plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, um, there's some real technology there. 
Um, and so for them actually to get built out, uh, there needs to be a, a real value proposition there. Now, as the price of oil goes up and up and up, it doesn't it make alternative energy technologies more attractive? No, certainly. I mean, that is the large-scale driver behind solar or wind, uh, biofuels, et cetera. And that's really why these technologies are here to stay. The higher that oil and, and natural gas prices are for longer, the more incentive for startup companies, for, for innovators to, uh, to jump into the market. One of the big investors in wind power is T. Boone Pickens, and he's going to start building the world's largest wind farm in the world, in Texas. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to see a uh, Texas oil man finally wake up and realize that you know there really are some forces at play here. If you look to T. Boone Pickens is uh, starting to get into the water market. Uh, he's buying up aquifers in Texas and the Southwest. Um, and in addition to energy storage, uh, we're looking at water as being one of the next of these um, little boomlets. All of these energy technologies to some degree or other require the, uh, the use of water. So basically... Greater parts of the greater renewable energy system um, that need to come online and be viable in order for the entire system to work. Well, Mr. Sullivan, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Bruce. Ted Sullivan is a senior analyst with the market research firm Lux Research. Television has been broadcasting in color for nearly 50 years, but only now has it gone green. Debuting on cable TV is Planet Green, featuring all things green all the time, from beauty products to pop stars. I'm Tommy Lee. What's up? What's the deal? And you got Ludacris right here, and I already know what everybody's thinking. They're thinking, what do rappers and rockers have in common? You know? Living life in the fast lane, dude. Living in the fast lane? Yeah. That might be true, but I'm going to tell you, we got to slow our roll to make sure we secure our futures. We're trying to do our part. Now you can join us by recycling today. One bottle or a can at a time can really make a difference. And when you're kicking back at home, check out Discovery's new network. It's called Planet Green, signing on Wednesday, June 4th. And make sure you look for us trying to outlap each other on Battleground Earth. Well, 50 million U.S. households will be able to do just that. Planet Green president and general manager Eileen O'Neill promises the cable channel will provide 24-7 ecotainment programming for an eco-lifestyle. Oh, you know, there's a lot to be done. You know, what we think about in terms of green is life only greener. So that, from a television perspective, gives us a huge range of genres. So when staying with some core ones like the home and food and auto and science and kind of lifestyle areas like fashion, there's quite the range. So, you know, viewers, when they tune in, will see 250 plus new hours starting in June and additional hours being added throughout the rest of the year. Um, It will be on an eight-hour um, repeat cycle. You know, really want people to understand what this ecotainment approach is um, from a, a big uh, content perspective. So, ecotainment, eco lifestyle. Yes. Do you have any fears that you might be watering down the whole notion of, of green? 
you know, we really wanted to take what is, you know, the substance and the core science and research that, you know, has finally really come to the mainstream and put it in a context and a filter that would engage even more people. You know, it felt like we needed to give something that was, you know, entertaining because that's what television is so good at delivering and also really personally relevant. We wanted to really bring that entertainment into our households and how it relates to the individual and what we can all do and and changing our lifestyles um, in in various ways because you know we're all at a different stage of the green spectrum and and we just want to keep pushing people uh, further along the spectrum. I went online and took a peek and a preview uh, of what's coming up and I noticed that you have a lot of partnerships but some of your underwriters well, I don't think of them as being very green companies. I'm thinking of General Motors. You have Caterpillar. Yeah, we have partnerships on both the nonprofit and the profit side. And, you know, some of the advertisers that you mentioned, you know, are definitely examples of, you know, who we think our content's for and who our advertisers um, are. And that is, you know, organizations or corporations or individuals that want to be better, have started in some way, and have the intention to be greener. So we're not sending a message that the network's perfect or advertisers are perfect or your audience has to be perfect. You know, General Motors absolutely, you know, steps forwards and step backwards. But we are really working with a number of mainstream advertisers that have made commitments to different degrees. And we're happy to, you know, start bringing their message of green to the marketplace. But could it be green by association? I'm thinking of a company that might want to appear green and so they associate with you, but they're not really green. Yeah, we take um, our relationship with advertisers very seriously, and we have um, very thoughtful conversations with each of our advertisers to understand, you know, what their commitment is and what their goals are and how they can match up with um, ours as well and um, really try to come up with a a message that um, makes sense and is authentic um, as possible. One of the substantial news pieces that you have on or news shows is called Greensburg. It's about a town in Kansas that was destroyed by a tornado back last May. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be the first model green community in the world. Greensburg's rebuilding. I think we'll be okay. Welcome to Greensburg. Please join us as we build a green American dream. Yes, I'm very proud of that um, series. Uh, We met with the town shortly after their uh, devastating tragedy last year, where I think nine persons were lost, and and then 95% of the physical property of the town was destroyed. And um, we met with the town folk uh, in early June and had the privilege to really chronicle uh, their rebuilding process that they had focused themselves on rebuilding green. One of the things that they had said to me when we first met that really struck me is, you know, they're middle America, and they felt that this was an opportunity to be a role model for um, the U.S. in the way that there's a perception that green has a particularly strong interest or focus on our coast, um, and that it's something that um, middle America doesn't really, you know, pay attention to or appreciate, and and they really have seen themselves as as a role model, and it's, it's been a great experience with them to see. Uh, the green movement through their eyes. Ms. O'Neill, do you have a, a favorite program coming up? <laughs> That's not a fair question. <laughs> I love all my babies. And you know what's so hard is the lineup is very diverse. Uh, we want something there for everyone, and, and we've you know not really 
defined our audience by a, a sharp demographic, but more psychographic. So I'm, I'm looking at certainly different genders, but different age groups and life stages. So I'm looking forward to uh, them finally reaching air, um, whether it's in June with the shows like Greensburg to, you know, July when uh, Bob Woodruff's series from ABC News launches and Emerald Lagasse's Whole Food series, and then kind of a monster of an entertainment series, the uh, Battleground Earth with Ludacris and Tommy Lee in August. So um, I love them all, and uh, I hope a lot of other people will too. Well, Ms. O'Neill, congratulations and best of luck. Thank you very much. Eileen O'Neill is the president and general manager of Planet Green. up power from the pupil a california classroom harnesses kids energy stay tuned to living on earth support for the environmental health desk at living on earth comes from the cedar tree foundation support also comes from the richard and rhoda goldman fund for coverage of population and the environment this is living on earth on pri public radio international it's living on earth i'm bruce kellerman It's your turn. We open the LOE mailbox. One Green listener, actually Jim Green, wrote in. He catches our program online and hauled us over the coals for our story about which was the more eco-friendly way to cook outdoors, gas or charcoal. I was disappointed that your oxymoronic piece on green grilling didn't address the bigger problem, he writes. What is being grilled? From what I've read, reducing meat consumption is something and perhaps the most useful thing everyone can do to reduce greenhouse gases. Several vegetarian listeners skewed us on the same point, including James Van Alstyne of the Mid-Hudson Vegetarian Society. He hears us on WAMC in Albany, New York, and cites a Cornell University study that shows the amount of grain consumed by U.S. livestock could feed over 800 million hungry people. Jim says that's enough calories to end world hunger. Another WAMC listener found our story about National Train Day on track. Diane Crane called our comment line. When I heard that uh, investors were starting to um, make inroads and investing in the rails again, I nearly stood up and cheered. There are too many trucks on the road. I think the rails should carry freight and people. Europe does it. Why can't we? Our cool fix for a hot planet from listener Steve McArthur drew a lot of attention. Steve makes his refrigerator more energy efficient by encasing it in styrofoam. But Carol Springer in Connecticut thought styrofoam might be a bad idea and proposed a green alternative. The WNPR listener uses 100% wool insulation on her fridge. It's called Whisper Wool Underlayment. And after hearing our story on WHYY, the whole idea of wrapping a refrigerator gave Dan Lefevre and itch to call us. Well, a lot of refrigerators at one point, and a lot of freezers, I think, still do, have coils built in to the surface on the inner side of the exterior case. So if you would insulate it, you would only be making it use more energy because it couldn't dispel its heat. Well, thanks, Dan. And if you're hot under the collar about something you hear on Living on Earth, have a yarn to spin, or just want us to stop making puns, 
Don't be sheepish. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. And for our listeners, we're always all ears. Call 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Zoos are fun. They're educational. A normal part of childhood. But for a Palestinian kid living on the West Bank, the Kalkilia Zoo is much more. It's a refuge from barricades, checkpoints, and chaos. The Kalkilia Zoo has survived bombs and bullets. It's the only zoo in the West Bank, and it's run by the only zoo vet in the Palestinian territories. Amelia Thomas writes about the zookeeper and his animals in her new book, The Zoo on the Road to Nablus, A Story of Survival from the West Bank. And she joins me from Jerusalem. Welcome, Amelia. Thank you very much for having me. This is a very unlikely place to put a zoo at a very inopportune time. Why a zoo in Kalkilia? The zoo in Kalkilia is one of the only things now for the public to do in the West Bank. Um, there's pretty much no other kind of uh, leisure activities there at all. Kalkilia itself is a town on the very edge of the West Bank, so it's one of the closest towns to Israel. As a journalist, I was intrigued by the idea that there could even be a zoo in Kalkilia in the West Bank. And I heard about it in a tiny little news article, a Palestinian news article. So I went there to have a look and see if it was really true. And it was. Well, the zoo is, is well, uh, let's be generous about it. It's it's kind of pathetic. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not what we would consider to be a, a zoo of any kind of Western caliber. It's a small zoo right in the center of the town. So there's very little room for expansion there. And they've had to struggle against some pretty difficult situations through two intifadas where there's been a lot of shooting, a lot of curfews. But the head vet there, in fact, the only vet there, who's the only Palestinian zoo vet and who I follow in the, in the story, has this dream to uh, turn it into an international zoo, he calls it. Dr. Cotter, or you call him Dr. Sammy, is sort of a unlikely heroic figure. He's kind of roly-poly with a mustache is the way I kind of envision him. <laughs> yeah, he's um, he's not your average hero, definitely. He's, as you say, he's, he's a, little, uh, a little chubby <laughs> and uh, a little scruffy as well. But he has been the one who's kept the zoo going through its hardest periods. Dr. Sammy's always sort of managed to find some way of looking on the positive side of even the direst of circumstances. When animals have been killed, in, uh, especially in the second intifada, several animals were killed during fighting. Instead of giving up and saying, well, there's no way we're going to get another zebra, he, uh, he turned to stuffing them. He's a taxidermist and he starts stuffing the animals and that's just yeah. okay with him. That's, you know, a solution. Yeah, because that meant that he would, uh, he'd, okay, he'd start a natural history museum and make the best of a bad situation. He's got these rusting cages, and rather than leave them empty, he finds some chickens and puts them in there because you can't have a cage with no animals in them, he says. That's right. The main reason that he keeps the zoo going is for uh, is for the people of the town and the people of the region when they can get there. And his idea is, you know, no one wants to see an empty cage. So if you have an empty cage because an animal's died or you can't get any new animals, find something to put in it. So people of the town have brought in animals that they've found. So he's got a badger um, and he's got some ducks. So in the hardest times, a lot of the cages were filled with chickens. The town's surrounded by part of the security wall. That's right. It's it's almost surrounded 360 degrees by the security wall or barrier. So it limits movement a lot. The only way in and out is one checkpoint, which is fairly regularly closed and is policed. How did you get back and forth through the security fence? As a journalist, you're allowed pretty much free access into the West Bank and into Israel and into Gaza. So I was allowed this kind of viewpoint that very few people really 
are allowed um, by travelling to and from Calculia fairly freely. It's kind of a tricky thing when you see yourself, you show a card and you go straight through and you know that there's people in Calculia who haven't been allowed out of the town for years. They can't go and visit their relatives, they can't, they can't travel, they can't even get to the next town or to the, the places where they would traditionally have sent their goods to market. Is it overwrought to think that in writing this book you, you used uh, the zoo as a metaphor for Calculia? Am I reading too much into it? I, I think that that's absolutely true. I think, it, it, and it's not only a, a metaphor for Calcilla, but probably a metaphor for sort of the broader Palestinian situation in many situations within the Middle East, where people are sort of caught up in what they would consider to be cages. One of the characters in the book is Ruti, the giraffe, yeah. and uh, her mate is murdered. Brownie was was found for Ruti so that she'd have a mate. And it's very difficult to get any animals into Calculia at all, let alone a giraffe. So he was finally found for her and slowly they fell in love. She was the instigator. And during the second intifada, one night, troops stationed themselves at boys' school, which backs onto the zoo. And as darkness fell, started shooting into the zoo. We assume that was because they spotted militants. And uh, the sound of the gunfire startled Brownie. He ran from the gunfire, hit his head on a lintel above the door of the giraffe night enclosure, and that killed him, unfortunately. Zoos in war uh, have a, a very troubled history, it seems to me. You write about it in the book. You write about Iraq, uh, the world's first zoological garden, and an American soldier there wound up shooting a animal, a tiger, I guess, yeah, zoos in wartime have always, they've always in a way reflected the, the situation of the country itself. During the Second World War, zoos in, in Britain, but also in Germany, suffered a lot under bombings. And what intrigued me a little bit more about the Palestinian situation rather than the other zoos was that in Calcilia, nobody seemed to come in to help. In Iraq and in Afghanistan, international aid was sent in. People brought supplies for the animals, people brought vets, people donated to funds to help these zoos. And Calcilia zoos sort of seemed to be a little bit forgotten well, there's this absurd quality to what's going on there. This man with a mission to build a zoo and this war going on, the intifada. It's yeah. just, it's so absurd. Often you do sort of look, wake up in the morning and read the newspaper or go out and to tell a story and just think how absurd the situation is in this region. One of the things that struck me particularly when I was when I was writing the story and researching in Calcilia was that the contrast between one side of the security wall inside Kalkilia and the other side outside Kalkilia in Israel was so stark. You know, in, in one side of the fence, people are driving nice cars and drinking wine at lunchtime. And on the other side of the fence, really none of that is going on. People are going down the road on donkey carts. And so, yeah, there is an absolute absurdity to the situation. So what happens now, Amelia? What happens to the zoo now? Things have been slowly, gradually improving. This is a part in the story where I talk about Dr. Sami's new project, which is the Museum of Everything which was his, his third museum. His first museum was a natural history museum. His second museum was an agricultural museum. And after that, he decided to broaden it out a little bit and create a museum of everything. And that's since opened. So he's created a, a, a huge papier-mâché space shuttle and a, a massive dinosaur and a volcano, which allegedly erupts, although I've never seen it erupt. Um, and so he's, you know, he's pressing on and planning new things for monkey enclosure, which is going to be a new enclosure for his fairly motley collection of monkeys. It's never easy to say what, what will happen in this region of the world and things can change, you know, overnight. But he's tenacious and he doesn't want to give up. And I think he'll keep on going until he gets what he wants. Amelia Thomas is a correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor, The Middle East Times, and Lowly Planet. Her new book is called The Zoo on the Road to Nablus, a story of survival from the West Bank. 
Amelia, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Something tells me it's all happening at the zoo. I do believe it. I do believe it's true. Sharon Campbell is no ordinary art teacher, and where she teaches is no ordinary classroom. It's a spaceship headed for Mars. She calls it the RMS Energy Star. RMS stands for the Redwood Middle School. It's in Napa, California, and it's where Sharon Campbell's mission to explore science, art, and conservation takes off daily. Hi, Sharon. Hello, Bruce. So why have you converted your classroom into a spaceship? Well... Our classroom is our very largest tool for teaching, and my students don't like living in a beige classroom any more than an office worker likes working in a beige office. Our colors are baby blue, hot pink, hot purple, silvers, golds. You can look out through the portholes, you can see Mars, and you can see Saturn. You're doing more than just teaching art. Well, about uh, four years ago, something really exciting happened to me. I found something at a conference. It was called a Promethean Board, an active board. And what it did was it allows me to teach to my students through sound, through sight. But our school district doesn't have any money. And yet I knew it was exactly what I needed to meet the needs of every student in my class. So I wrote a grant Uh, with the British Petroleum Company, who gives money to individual teachers for innovative programs. And what I did was I looked at my husband and I said, can you create a bicycle that'll make uh, electricity so I can run my classroom? And my husband said, "Uh uh-huh. And I chose that because uh, there's nothing more active than uh, 14 seventh and eighth grade boys in each class. So I figured that uh, they could use their excess energy and create electricity for my classroom, and I would have the money to build the bicycle and buy the Promethean board. So your husband built the bicycle that can power the Promethean board? Yes, and our sound system and our projector. The students pedal it for 15 minutes each hour, each period. So I have three students sign up, and they pedal for five minutes apiece, and they can go ahead and continue their projects or watch the lesson plan at the same time. Hmm. Well, let me speak to one of your student generators. Okay. So what's your name? My name's Brandon Beck. I'm in seventh grade. So, Brandon, do you ride the power-generating bike in the classroom? Yes, I do. Every day, uh, whenever I can. Why don't you hop on the bike and tell me what it's like to ride the bike? How's that? I like riding the bike because ever since I learned about global warming and, like, saving energy, that's been one of my main priorities because I, I'd i like my kids to be able to, like, see a polar bear or a penguin, and I wouldn't like my house to be under 50 feet of water from all the melting that's happening. Well, Brendan, thank you very much. Let me speak to another student there. My name is Thomas. Tom, what do you like about this class? Or what you don't like about this class? Um, there's not much I don't like about this class. It's, it's a fun class, and uh, you're really involved in it, and you get to interact with all the things she has in this class. You get to learn how to edit the films. You get to learn how to make, conserve energy. You get to use the Promethean board. Well, give me an example how you conserve energy. 
one year for the back to school night or the parents night where the parents came back to class instead of like giving them like coffee and a cookie or something she gave every one of the parents a light bulb uh energy conservation light bulb we also have competitions each period gets like for every energy conservation thing that they did they get an energy dollar and they get put it in the jar of like what period they're in and whatever period has the most dollars the end of the month gets like a prize or something I heard they're called eco-bucks. Yeah. It's just a way of measuring, like, of what that period has done to uh, conserve energy. So, Ms. Campbell, uh, are all your crew members male? No, we have uh, <laughs> crew members of both genders. And let me go get one of our young ladies. I'm Megan. I live in Napa, and I'm about I'm 13, actually. So tell me about your your experience in Mrs. Campbell's class. What have you learned? And uh... I do lots of things this year. It's so much fun. I mean, there's always something to do, and she does a lot to conserve the energy. Megan, are there any um, lessons that you've learned in Mrs. Campbell's class that you've taken home with you and that you've tried to teach to your parents? Yes. Don't waste anything. Instead of washing like one thing at a time, we tend to like. Use an entire load of laundry. We shut off lights whenever we leave the room. And they actually put a time limit for how long I can talk on the phone. (laughs) Oh, that's got to be a tough lesson. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Megan, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Ms. Campbell, how has this project affected the the community outside of your classroom? Well, the students sort of downplayed their role in the community. They are doing energy conservation commercials right now. We have some that are doing global warming, and we have really one of the nicest is a race between the plastic bag, the reusable bag, and the paper bag. Now, would you like paper or plastic? Um, none. I brought my own. That's a good idea. Here you go. Bye. That's a good idea. Maybe I- We have some that are doing uh, bright ideas, turn off a light. This fall, the students received a donation of 5,000 energy conservation light bulbs from the Sylvania Company. And within two and a half days, they had placed every light bulb in a home in the Napa Valley. And then they took 500 bulbs and they wrapped them for Christmas, put the, put ribbons on them, and we took them to the food bank and we made sure that they went to the most needy households in the valley as well. My students are concerned citizens even though they're 11 and 12 years old. In five years, they'll be voters. The future's in great hands. Well, Ms. Campbell, thank you very much. Well, thank you for giving my students a voice. Sharon Campbell teaches at the Redwood Middle School in Napa, California. At our website, LOE.org, you can find pictures of her spaceship classroom. It's out of this world. On the next Living on Earth, the ancient cliff dwellings at Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico are being vandalized. To me, it's like coming into my house and carving your name on my wall. You know, that's how I feel that these are disrespectful. I wouldn't go into anybody's house and carve my name into their wall. Restoring sacred sites next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Calkins. Our interns are Kim Gittleson and Jessica Elise Smith. 
Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.